The thing about history is that everything happens all at once, everywhere, all the time. We imagine history as a series of individual events because that's how we learn about it. This happened and then this happened and then this happened. Tick, tick, tick. We make neat little timelines showing history's progression. But of course, that's not how it really works. There's nothing neat about reality. History actually happens in a big, messy tangle of cause and effect. Historians usually pick a topic and go deep. They trace stories over months and years, even centuries. That's a great way to learn about history, but it's not the only way. Instead of going deep, you can go wide. You can look at history during one period of time, one year perhaps, and try to see that year from as many angles as possible. That's what I want to do with this podcast. My name is Elizabeth Lunday. I'm an author. I write a lot about art and music, and I've always been really interested in how culture reflects history and how everything shapes everything else. My plan for this podcast is to concentrate on one year at a time. I'll look at the big headline stories that make the history books, but I'll also consider smaller stories and more intimate moments. I want to tell stories about all sorts of people, not just old white guys. So I'll be looking at what happened to women and people of color. And I'm really interested in finding the connections between stories. What are the strands that link politics and science, art and international affairs? I think we'll learn something different by looking at history this way. Something about how life was actually experienced by the people of the time. So, welcome to my new podcast. This is The Year That Was, Season 1, 1919. The first season of this podcast is devoted to the year 1919. Why start from that year, aside from the obvious of the century mark? Well, 1919 was a year where everything shifted. The Great War, which ended in November 1918, had so disrupted the world that the status quo was shot all to pieces. Everything was uncertain, unsteady, unmade. One contemporary observer described the state of the world as molten, no longer solid, but inchoate and flowing like cooling lava. Over the course of the year, the world began to harden and fix into new configurations. Empires collapsed, new countries came into existence, millions of people died in wars and epidemics. Our very understanding of the universe changed. And here's something I find interesting about 1919. Everyone felt it happen. They knew they were living through a time of extraordinary change. Many of them wanted change. The war had caused so much suffering that the only way to make sense of that agony was for it to mean something. People needed to justify their pain as the price they had to pay for a better future. Things had to get better. The future had to be brighter. 
Others were not so sure. They looked around and felt not hope, but dread. They feared the future would be worse, not better. Over the course of this season, we're going to keep those two points of view in mind, the hopeful and the fearful. At the end of the season, I think we'll have a better sense which one of them was right. If we're going to talk about 1919, we're going to have to talk about 1918. We'll go into more detail in later episodes, but for now, here's a reminder of just how bad things had gotten. So here's the big picture. More than 70 million personnel served in the armies of Germany, France, Great Britain, the United States, and all of the other major and minor players in the Great War. 60 million of those soldiers were from Europe. About 10 million died. 23 million were wounded. How do you put that much death into perspective? When you add civilian deaths from enemy action, hunger, and disease, the number jumps by about half again to more than 15 million. Note that that doesn't include deaths from the great influenza epidemic that occurred between 1918 and 1919 and which killed up to 100 million more. Most of the fighting had taken place in Europe. We are most familiar with the Western Front, the line of trenches that cut from the English Channel to the Alps. But you've got to remember that the Eastern Front of the war was just as bloody, if not worse. It encompassed most of Eastern Europe and stretched from the Baltic Sea in the north to the Mediterranean in the south. But the war was truly a world war, if not on the scale of World War II. Battles were fought in Jerusalem and Damascus, Basra and Tikrit, Togo and Kilimanjaro, Tsingtao and Penang. Nor did the fighting stop on November 11th when the war officially ceased. Conflict continued throughout 1919 across Eastern Europe and across Russia, in Asia and the Middle East, and in hot spots like Mexico and Ireland. This was a bloody, chaotic time. In future episodes, we'll talk about how the Great War started, how it ended, and what happened next. Right now, we're going to focus on how people felt in its immediate aftermath by looking at two works of literature. We're going to see how a novel and a poem written within a year of one another reflect attitudes of the time. We're going to start with the novel, and I don't know if it's the kind of novel you would expect. It's not a great work of literature, and I doubt it's ever taught in English classes, but it's a favorite of mine. We're going to talk about Rilla of Ingleside. For those of you who didn't spend your childhoods longing for puffed sleeves on your dresses, here's what you need to know. Rilla of Ingleside is the final volume in the Anne of Green Gables series. Surely everyone has heard of Anne of Green Gables by now. It's got its own gritty reboot on Netflix. Anne is the main character in a series of books by Canadian author Lucy Maud Montgomery. The first book in this series, Anne of Green Gables, was published in 1908, and it tells the story of plucky red-haired orphan Anne, who was adopted by an aging brother and sister pair on Prince Edward Island. Shenanigans ensue. The book was an immediate hit, so Montgomery followed it with seven more books, or eight or ten, depending on how you count them. Over the course of the series, Anne grows up, goes to college, marries the ever-faithful Gilbert Blythe, despite the fact he has no personality at all, and the two of them have a handful of children. 
The books are sentimental, moralistic, and episodic. I have read them all a bajillion times. They're comfort food, like soup. Rilla of Ingleside is an unusual conclusion to this series since it deals with bigger issues than any of the other titles. It begins in June of 1914 when Anne's youngest daughter, Rilla, is about to turn 15. Rilla is fun-loving, charming, and beautiful and sees nothing but delightful times ahead. Of course, everything goes to hell, not that anyone would use a shocking word like hell in an Anne of Green Gables book, when the war breaks out. Rilla's three brothers, one by one, enlist and ship off to Europe. One is injured, captured, and barely escapes. Another is killed. The book reflects the reality of Canadian involvement in the war. Some 600,000 Canadians served in the war as soldiers, nurses, and chaplains. Canadian divisions played critical roles at Vimy Ridge and Passchendaele, and about 60,000 Canadians lost their lives. However, in Rilla of Ingleside, the focus stays firmly on Prince Edward Island and on the women at home. This is really remarkable when you think about it. I don't know of any other contemporary book that deals with women's domestic lives during World War I. If you know of one, let me know, because I'm genuinely curious. The character of Anne recedes into the background. She's usually off doing Red Cross work. The two main characters are, of course, Rilla and the family's housekeeper, Susan. Rilla and Susan throw themselves into supporting the war. They knit socks, they roll bandages, they give recruitment speeches and sell war bonds. Rilla takes a job as a shopkeeper so the men of the town can bring in the harvest. And Susan marches into the fields herself with a pitchfork. Rilla even takes in an infant whose mother dies in childbirth and whose father is at the front. Their lives are consumed by the war, even as they go about their ordinary business. At one point, Anne says, All the forenoon I preserved rhubarb with my hands and waited for the war news with my soul. What sustains these women is faith that they are making these sacrifices for a reason. When Rilla's beloved older brother Walter enlists, he tells her, There were girls as sweet and pure as you in Belgium and Flanders. You, even you, know what their fate was. Walter is here referring to the widely reported claims of rape and murder of women in the path of the invading German army. We now know those claims were exaggerated, but Montgomery believed them when she wrote the book. Walter goes on, we must make it impossible for such things to happen again while the world lasts. You'll help me, won't you? Walter is a poet, and while in France, he writes a war poem that becomes an overnight success around the world. Author Lucy Maud Montgomery based this on real events. Canadian Lieutenant Colonel John McRae served in France and wrote a poem called In Flanders Fields While at the Front. It was published by a newspaper and became an immediate global success. Montgomery only quotes a few lines of Walter's poem, but we know it called for those at home to keep the faith with the dead who fought for a better tomorrow. This is a reflection of McRae's actual poem. The last verse of that poem reads... Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you from failing hands, we throw the torch. Be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die. 
we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders fields. That's the late, great Leonard Cohen reading the poem in a production for Legion magazine. I've put a link to the video that includes Cohen reading the entire verse on the website. It's very moving. In Rilla of Ingleside, when the armistice is announced, the family gathers together and Rilla says, We have won the victory, but oh, what a price we have paid. Not too high a price for freedom, said Gertrude softly. Do you think it was, Rilla? No, said Rilla under her breath. She was seeing a little white cross on a battlefield of France. No, not if those of us who live will show ourselves worthy of it. If we keep faith... We will keep faith, said Gertrude. I'm using the audio from a LibriVox recording of Rilla of Ingleside. LibriVox is this cool service that offers free recordings of books in the public domain. Karen Savage is the narrator here. I've included a link on the website. Now, Montgomery published Rilla of Ingleside in 1921, but she began writing it in 1919. And I think it accurately represents a widespread attitude at the time in the Victor Nations. Just to show Montgomery wasn't alone, here's a quote from a speech given in the mid-20s by an American veteran, a speech that also refers back to the Flanders Fields poem. They will not sleep in Flanders Fields unless we pick up the torch they bore so high and carry on in the great cause for which they had died. We have to make safe the cause of liberty by living for it, perhaps indeed a harder task than theirs who died for it. Wartime propaganda had encouraged this way of thinking from day one. Only two weeks into fighting, the English science fiction writer H.G. Wells wrote an essay in which he proclaimed, This is now a war for peace. It aims at a settlement that shall stop this sort of thing forever. Every soldier who fights against Germany now is a crusader against war. This, the greatest of all wars, is not just another war, it is the last war. Well, sentiment evolved into the phrase, the war to end all wars. Even as the war dragged on and the casualties mounted, people clung to the belief that the war had a greater purpose than nationalistic political gains. I suspect that many of them had to keep believing it. Otherwise, what was the point? How could anyone tolerate the losses and sacrifices demanded by their governments if victory meant no more than some territory gained? Government propaganda in the Allied countries hammered home the idea that Germany was an existential threat to all that was good and right in the free world. Yes, this allowed governments to make enormous demands on their citizens. But citizens weren't stupid for buying the propaganda. They were protecting themselves by preserving a sense of hope. You need some kind of hope in the future to get up in the morning and keep going. In the countries where all hope was eventually lost, society broke down, commitment to the war effort failed, and the result was riot and revolution. Among the Allies, a sense of hope prevailed. Not for everyone, and not without a sense of loss and a certain amount of disillusionment. But there was hope. It was real, and people were eager to build new lives upon its foundation. 
That included Rilla back there in Ingleside. At the very end of the book, she's not sure what to do with herself now that the war is over. She was hoping that her maybe boyfriend Kenneth would come home and marry her, but she hasn't heard from him in weeks. Everyone else is rushing off into an exciting new future, but Rilla feels lonely and lost. A friend is planning to go take a course in household science. Rilla supposes she might as well join her. I suppose I'd better go with Una and take up household science, too, she thought, as she stood by her window and looked down through a delicate emerald tangle of young vines on Rainbow Valley, lying in a wonderful lilac light of sunset. There did not seem anything very attractive just then about household science. But with a whole new world waiting to be built, a girl must do something. Of course, at that very moment, her missing boyfriend knocks on the door and Rilla presumably goes off and marries him, despite the fact that, like most of Lucy Maud Montgomery's male leads, he has no personality whatsoever. But that is by the way. The point is that Rilla, like many others in 1919, believed there was a whole new world waiting to be built. It was an optimism tempered by suffering, but optimism nonetheless. It was not an optimism that everyone shared. Let's now shift to another part of the world, another writer, and another point of view. Irish poet William Butler Yeats had a far more detached attitude toward the war than Montgomery, despite being much closer to it. Yeats spent the war years in Ireland and England, and so the war would have been front and center in his life. Yet he told a friend he gave the war, quote, as little thought as I can. When the novelist Henry James asked him to contribute a poem to a collection to raise money for Belgian refugees, he replied with a short verse that begins, I think it better that in times like these a poet's mouth be silent, for in truth we have no gift to set a statesman right. That's ridiculous. Yeats seems to be saying that poets shouldn't comment on politics, but he wrote about politics all of the time. I think he just didn't want to do it. Yeats was a very self-absorbed person, so his attitude toward the Great War wasn't all that surprising. But Yeats also reflected the attitudes of many of his countrymen and women. Many Irish felt the war wasn't their problem. It was Britain's war, not theirs. In fact, Irish nationalists, many of whom were good friends with Yeats, considered Britain's fight against Germany the perfect opportunity to sneak a blow against the English while they were distracted. We'll get into what the Irish did and how the British responded in a later episode. For now, what matters is that Yates was living through a tumultuous time that included street fighting, martial law, military reprisals, and constant simmering tension throughout Ireland. The other cause for Yates' self-absorption toward the end of the war and into 1919 was that Yates had gotten married in 1917. He had then fallen madly in love with his wife. Most people go about this process the other way around. Yates married Georgie Hyde Lees, a former art student who was 25 to his 52, and people definitely commented on the age difference. Yates was desperate to get married. He had a lifelong habit of falling in love with beautiful, tormented, unavailable women, but he had finally realized that none of these women were going to marry him. If he was ever going to get married, he needed to pick a different kind of woman. He wrote a friend that he had a great longing for order, for routine, and shall be content if I find a friendly, serviceable woman. Apparently, he thought Georgie fit the bill. She was, he said, friendly, serviceable, and very able. 
Personally, I wouldn't be particularly thrilled if my husband-to-be considered my best quality my serviceability. It sounds like something you want in a used car or maybe a dishwasher. However, Georgie was just as eager to get married as Yates. As long as she remained single, she had to live with her mother. And this part is pure conjecture on my part. I can't find anything in the biographies to support it, so take it with a grain of salt. But by 1917, she might have been worried about finding anyone else to marry. It was clear by then that an entire generation of young men weren't going to come home from the war. Yates might have seemed like a good bet, considering... So they got married, but the first few weeks of the marriage were grim. Yates spent his honeymoon moping around and writing poems to all of those beautiful, tormented women who were now extra super unavailable. Georgie, or George, as her husband now called her, needed a way to turn the situation around fast. So she picked up a pen and began automatic writing. Automatic writing or spirit writing claims to be a psychic ability that allows a person to produce written words unconsciously under the influence of a spiritual or supernatural source. Yates was super into it. He had spent years seeking guidance from various mediums, took very seriously the advice of his personal spirit guide, who claimed, incidentally, to be a 16th century Arab geographer. And Yates' courtship of George had mainly consisted of the two of them attending seances together. So George knew the drill. She began pouring out words, pages and pages of them. Yates was absolutely gobsmacked, especially when the spirits began telling Yates how happy the marriage was going to be. They informed him that all of those beautiful, tormented women were no good, but George had been destined to be his partner. Also, just FYI, his marriage to George would become a powerful sexual union if he took the time to be attentive to her needs. Yates was over the moon. I mean, what are the odds that the young woman desperate to make a success of her marriage to a credulous spiritualist discovers in herself a remarkable ability to communicate with the great beyond? Exactly how much of George's automatic writing was guided by the spirit world and how much was conscious on her part, we will never know. She once told a biographer that the automatic writing was, quote, faked, but then walked back the word, claiming the situation was complicated. Whatever, it worked. Before long, the two were blissfully in love and expecting a child. George had a difficult pregnancy, nearly dying during the influenza epidemic, which we'll talk about in a later episode. But she survived and had a healthy baby girl in February 1919. In between nearly dying and having a baby, George continued automatic writing. Yates was particularly obsessed with quizzing the spirits about his theories about cycles of history. He had this idea that history repeated on various timescales and that the moment when the cycles restarted was a particularly chaotic and unsettled time. He was convinced that the world was at one of those points in 1919 and to his endless gratification, the spirits agreed with him. He became gripped with a sort of cosmic uncertainty about the future. At the same time, he couldn't ignore the turmoil of the world around him, no matter how hard he tried. The Irish War of Independence was in full swing. And so Yeats sat down and wrote his most famous poem, The Second Coming. Now, if this were another poem exploring the finer points of Yeats' mystical theorizing, no one would read it except graduate Irish literature studies, God bless them. Instead, it captures the tension and anxiety that overwhelmed many people in 1919. 
I think for all of his detachment and self-absorption, Yeats was in some ways deeply in tune with his time. Some artists are like that. They're like seismographs plugged into the planet. They can't help but record the vibrations of the earth. Here's how the poem begins. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. That's actor Dominic West reading The Second Coming in a production for the Irish Public Broadcasting Service, RTE. If the bit about a gyre is confusing, know that a gyre is a spiral or a vortex. The image is of a falcon flying high in the sky above the falconer, but the bird is caught in a wheeling vortex that separates him from the falconer below. The bird and its master should be as one, but it's as if they were in separate universes, and no matter how loudly the falconer calls, the falcon cannot hear him. Yeats goes on. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. Something is coming, but what? Not sweet baby Jesus, I can tell you that. Whatever is coming is monstrous, terrifying, and unknown. It's like in a horror movie when you hear footsteps and you don't know what's making them. Horror movies are always at their best when you can't see the monster. And so it is in The Second Coming. Yeats gives us snatches of images, a sphinx in the desert moving its slow thighs, a rocking cradle, and the final glimpse in the last two lines. And what rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. The word slouches is what really nails this poem. What sort of beast slouches? You picture Quasimodo from The Hunchback of Notre Dame or maybe Frankenstein's monster, something deformed, broken, wrong. I have to wonder, did Yeats also picture those wounded in war? They were returning in vast numbers from the front, some limping, some slouching, many with their faces covered to hide their injuries. These men were not monsters, certainly not, and I do not in any way mean to imply that. They were ordinary men who had endured enormous suffering. As a result, they were broken, battered, and disfigured. Did they help trigger that image in Yates' mind? The second coming acts like a jolt of adrenaline on the nervous system. Something is coming, and you should be terrified. This sense of dread and apprehension was just as common after the war as Rilla's sense of hope. In fact, it might have been more common. The losing countries were struggling with revolution and social collapse, as well as nearly unbearable humiliation. Everywhere, even in the victor nations, countries were struggling to reintegrate returning soldiers and remake their economies. Individuals endured loss, displacement, illness, and the threat of violence. No one knew when a riot might erupt, a bomb might go off, an innocent man dragged from his house and lynched. Yates' anxiety was understandable, but that brings me back to Rilla and her optimism. Was she deluding herself? Who was right? Was 1919 the start of a new world and these outbreaks of violence merely the final throes of the war? Or would the year see the birth of a monstrous unknown that would bring down civilization? 
I don't know the answer, but I'm going to try to find out. We're all going to try to find out over the next few weeks in this first season of the year that was. This will be our guiding question. Was 1919 a year of hope or a year of dread? I'm coming to the end of this first episode, so let me give you a sense of what's coming up. This week, there's going to be a special bonus episode on the origins of World War I. That will be followed next week by a look at the peace conference that tried to remake the world order so it would be safe for democracy. After that, we're going to move around the globe looking at art and music, independence movements and revolutions. Several of the later episodes will focus in on events in the United States because 1919 was a transformational year for everything from voting rights to racial issues to baseball. There will be plenty of digressions, a lot of oversized personalities, and maybe when it's done, we'll all have a glimpse of what it was like to live in 1919. The year that was is a new adventure for me, and I am so excited that you're coming along. If you have questions about today's episode or there are things you want me to cover, please leave a comment on the Facebook page. You can find a link to the page on the website, www.theyearthatwaspodcast.com. The website has links and photos and suggestions for reading and all kinds of fun stuff. If you like what you hear, please leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast service. It really helps new podcasts stand out from the crowd. And please subscribe. Thanks for listening. This is going to be so much fun. I'm Elizabeth Lunday, and this is The Year That Was. (laughs) 